We have two sermons left in our Genesis series. Two. That's a big deal for those of you who haven't been with us. Uh, first of all, the book of Genesis is 50 chapters. Uh, so that's a big book, a lot of chapters. Uh, we've been in this series for three years now. And again, we haven't been um, in this for three years every week of the year. Our pattern has been to be in Genesis January through about May. Um, but nonetheless, three years of commitment, investment in this book, and we're nearing the end with two sermons left. So I want to uh, invite you to look at Genesis chapter 48 with me this morning. Genesis chapter 48, uh, the passage is provided for you in the worship guide if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, and if you do want to follow along in an actual Bible and you don't have one, um, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles uh, in the pew racks in front of you. So last week, uh, at the end of chapter 47, the scene was this. Joseph's father, Jacob, uh, is nearing death. And Jacob had a very important message to deliver to his son. He wanted his son, Joseph, to make a promise, to make a covenant that when Jacob dies, he would not bury him in Egypt, where they currently are, but that he would take his body back to the promised land, to Canaan, to bury him there. As we move into chapter 48, uh, Jacob is ill, so he's even closer to death at this point. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning, uh, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw... Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and, on, and his left hand on the, hand of, the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to, your, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray and ask God to be with us as we look into his word. God, we come to you. And our prayer is simple, that you would breathe life into our lives through your word. We pray that you would do this, whether in this moment we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would be near to us. We pray that you would bring the truth of your word to bear on our hearts and our lives so that we might actually be formed and changed, even if we don't sense it or we aren't aware of it in the moment. We pray that you would get the glory for what is about to happen through the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably heard the name John Grisham before. Uh, He's an American writer uh, who has written legal thrillers. That's what he has focused on. Um, And he's one of the most popular writers of our time. You may or may not know that he is also a believer in the Christian faith. And there was one particular episode uh, that was a defining moment in his spiritual journey, and it came several years after he graduated from college. One of his classmates in law school came to him and told him that he was terminally ill. When Grisham asked him, what do you do when you realize you are about to die? The friend replied, it's real simple. You get things right with God and you spend as much time with those as you love as you can. Then you settle up with everybody else. That's kind of what's going on in our narrative this morning. Jacob is, in a sense, uh, wanting to get right with God, and by that I don't mean um, moving into a place of favor and salvation with God. He's already uh, experienced that by God's grace, Um, But still, nonetheless, he's wanting to do some examination in his relationship to God, and he's also wanting to get things right, so to speak, with some of his closest family members. I want you to imagine with me, and I want you to kind of hold this thought, hold this, this vision for the remainder of the sermon. I want you to imagine that you are at the end of your life. You are on your deathbed. And 
you're looking back on your life. And my question is this. This is really the, the question that I want to penetrate with. What would you hope your life would look like? So you're on your deathbed and you're looking back. You're looking at your life. What would your hope be? What, what would you want to see? What would you want to be able to point to? What would you want to be able to testify to? It's an important question. It's a weighty question. But I, I think it's a question that our text this morning kind of brings to the surface for us. Here's a reality. Now, it's gonna, when I say it, it's going to seem so obvious and see, so basic, but the reality is, is that we overlook it on a daily basis, and it is this. You are going to die someday. I am going to die someday. We all are going to die someday. Now, I get it. might be a morbid way to begin a sermon, but those who are wise live in light of the reality of death. You know, we um, read together in our opening psalm in the call to worship a prayer to God, essentially, help us to number our days. This is a, a wisdom issue. Now, we're going to talk practically as we work through this passage uh, together what that may and may not look like. But here's the, the big idea for our sermon this morning. Live your life with the end in view. Live your life from the perspective of the end, looking back. That's the concept or idea that we're working with this morning. I think that we have, it when it comes to the reality of death, we have maybe two tendencies that contrast. On the one hand, we could be kind of unnecessarily fixated on death in a way that breeds anxiety in our lives. On the other hand, we can be nonchalant about death, living as though we're never going to die. And I mean, and if we were asked, are you going to die? Of course, we would say, of course. But the way we live our lives, we give no thought to it. It's as though um, it, it, death will not come to us. And so I, I think that on, if we're creating a spectrum, those are maybe two opposite ends of the spectrum. And so we don't want to unnecessarily fixate on death, but we also don't want to ignore the reality of death. So how do we end up in the middle? What, what does that look like? In other words, what does it look like uh, to live wisely in light of the reality of death? Well, as we work through this scene together, the, the first scene within this overall scene that we have is Jacob basically preparing to die. Verses 1 and 2. The, the narrative is set for us. Joseph uh, is told that his father is ill. And as I mentioned, the end of chapter 47, we already knew that he was nearing death, but now it seems that death is maybe coming at any moment. He is ill. He is on his deathbed, essentially. And so Jacob is told that Joseph has come to him. And it says, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And he goes from here. Jacob is kind of saying his goodbyes. I mean, he's doing much more than this, but 
at a very basic level, we could describe what Jacob is doing in that way. He is saying his goodbyes. He's wanting to, to set things straight. He's wanting to settle things in his life. And here's a, a, a really cool thing that's going on here that I've been thinking about as I've been reading this passage and studying it this week. Jacob recognizes that his life is transitionary. What do I mean by that? What I'm referring to really is God's promises. Jacob, we're going to talk more about this, has walked in light of God's promises, not always extremely well. We've seen along the way that he's been a doubter. We've seen that he's been unfaithful. Does this sound like your life? You know, it sounds like my life in many ways. Uh, so he has not embraced and held to and believed the promises of God perfectly, but nonetheless, he, in his last days at this point, he is very clearly clinging to the promises of God. But he recognizes something. He recognizes that these promises were not simply only for him and for him to live out the implications of in his lifetime. He realizes that the implications of the promises of God carry forward beyond him. And so he's wanting to communicate this. He's wanting to drive this home to his son, Joseph, and to his grandsons. And then in the next chapter, uh, his other sons in addition to Joseph. Jacob realizes, you know, it's not put in these words, but Jacob realizes that he is in a grand story, a story that is bigger than himself. And what's cool about this is that it's a story that precedes him. He's constantly, even in this chapter, he's referring to it, um, Isaac and Abraham before him. He's referring to the saints who have gone before him, and he's now investing in the saints who will carry on. And so he finds himself in the middle as we all do. But that raises a question, another question. Do we have this concept? Do we have this vision of the story that we find ourselves in? Now, this has implications for where we're going with the overall point of the sermon, this idea of living in light of the end. But it really get, brings us back to this question of what story are you living in? And what story do you have an understanding of that you're living in? The Christian story that we inherit, that Jacob inherited, that Joseph has inherited, is a grand story. It's a large story. It's a story that is, points us back to the past. It's a story that informs the present, and it's a story that also points ahead to the future. It covers all time. And this story is one in which when our individual stories, our individual lives get caught up in it, from that point on, we live not simply for ourselves, but we have a vision of the world to invest in the world. And that's what Jacob has um, come to understand little by little in his life. And it's now the vision that he is instilling in his son and his grandsons. He's not forgetting the promises of God. He kind of tells his story a little bit, <clears throat> not in all of its detail, not in the fullness of its scope. But as we saw, he refers back to, and he kind of just goes into this in verse 3, to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me. So he takes him back to a prior moment in his life. This is Jacob doing some examination, some self-reflection in his life. 
And this is so incredibly important that you hear this. And, and let me preface it by saying this, because when we talk about this idea of, all right, imagine ourselves at the end of our lives, imagine ourselves on our deathbed, because we want to live wisely, um, we want to reach that point of our lives and be able to look back and um, have joy about how we've lived our lives, to be able to say that we've lived at least with some degree of wisdom that we could pass on. But here's the thing, and this was true of Jacob, no matter how hard we try, no matter how wise we might live, when we reach that point on our deathbed, we are going to have regrets because we are flawed, imperfect people. We are sinners. (laughs) Consider the life of Jacob. Here he is, seeming very godly to us, and he is, but we also know the other aspects of his story. He was a man who um, could not be trusted for most of his life. He was a man that was conniving, manipulative. He was a man who doubted the promises of God quite regularly, to the point that as you're reading through this in Genesis, and this is um, the case with a lot of the Bible and the characters that we come across, I, at least, and I'm sure you do too, you want to yell out, like, how are you doing this again? (laughs) Didn't you learn this lesson? And then I realize, oh, wait, I better keep my mouth shut because that is me. So when we reach that point at the end of our lives, at the end of the story, we inevitably are going to have regrets. There are going to be things that we are embarrassed by. And so what do you do with that? Well, the answer is right here. Jacob goes back to who God is and what God does. Again, what does he say? God Almighty appeared to me in the land of, um, in the land of not Cuz, in the land of Luz, which is another name for Bethel, which was a, um, a place, a memorable place in the book of Genesis. It's where God appeared to um, not only Jacob, but Isaac as well, Abraham, Uh, It was kind of a defining um, place in, in this book, in the narrative of Genesis. But he says, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz, and he said, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring. The emphasis is on what? The activity of God. Jacob has not reached the end of his life and is now examining and reflecting on what he has done and what he has not done. He gets all of that, I'm sure. You know, he is aware of that more than anyone else. Rather, what he's falling back on is who God is and what God has done. God is the main actor of the story. We've been saying that throughout this book, haven't we? God is the main actor of Genesis. He's the main actor of the Bible. And this is just one of those ways in which we see one flawed man believing that, clinging to that. And praise be to God, that is true. Because that is true, when your faith is in the promises of God, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, when you are at that point on your deathbed looking back, you don't have to weigh the good things you've done against the bad things you've done. You don't have to play that game that is... uh, ultimately hopeless. You get to look to God and his faithfulness, how he has been faithful and steady the whole way in every season of life, 
in your ups and downs, in your glory, and in your depravity. Imagine something else about this scene, how emotional it must have been. And actually, Jacob refers to this, I think, in verse 11, looking uh, down. In verse 11, Jacob um, says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Here, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's face to face with the son that he never thought he would see again. If you haven't been with us or you're not familiar with the storyline of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was separated from his family for about 20 years. His father, Jacob, assumed that he was dead. Think about that. Jacob had moved on with his life under the assumption that Joseph was no more. And then in previous chapters, uh, not too long ago, we saw how they are reunited. So that just adds to the emotion here. This is a scene that is occurring that Jacob never thought would be possible. He thought his son would be, was dead. And now here on his deathbed, his son is in his presence along with two of his grandsons that he never thought he would meet as well. And so what we see here, one of the things that we see here in Jacob's last days is the priority of relationships. Remember what uh, Grisham's friend said, um, it's real simple. You get things right with God and you spend as much time with those you love as you can. That's what Jacob is doing here, spending as much time as he can with those that he loves. And it's not just simply for his benefit, for their comforting presence to be with him. It's so that they might, he might instill in them this vision that he wants to be carried forward, this big vision of God's purposes in the world and who God has set his people apart to be in the world. So he is prioritizing relationships here. And then we move on to this next scene, which is really odd. I know that the first couple times I read it through, I you know, was wondering what is going on here. But it's this odd scene in which Jacob, the grandfather, adopts his two grandsons. Now, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Because you wouldn't expect a man who is about to die to adopt children. But that's what's happening here. And it's happening in order to highlight that these two sons are really members of God's people. These are two sons that were born in Egypt, but through this adoption process, and, and that's what's going on here. It's a very ritualistic process. It's an adoption. This, this is how adoption worked. <laughs> um, we, we see these rituals here. These two boys are being adopted officially, formally, into the covenant family of God. That's what this is symbolizing. You know, it's, we practice um, infant baptism here at City Church. And this is what is on display. That's what is symbolized. That blessing is being uh, conferred. It's not guaranteeing the salvation of a child. Um, just like in this way, in the same way, the salvation of these boys are not, is not being guaranteed. Um, we know many members of the covenant family in the Old Testament who were the people of God, at least in appearance, but turn out not to really be in, the, in that they have experienced true heart transformation and change. 
So think similarly about infant baptism. A blessing is being conferred, and it's symbolizing that this, this child is really genuinely coming into the sphere of God's people, the sphere of grace, in a way that God's grace and spirit are at work in ways that we can't even completely comprehend and understand. God likes this kind of thing. He's really into signs and symbols um, representing mysterious uh, movements and acts of his grace and spirit. And so he adopts his grandsons, symbolizing that they are officially in the family of God, and they replace two other sons. So this is a big deal. They, they, they replace two of, the, uh, of other sons of, of Joseph who had come before, Reuben and Simeon, who both, we don't have the time now to go back to it, but had for various reasons of grievous sin had essentially disqualified themselves from the blessing and um, inheritance that was initially theirs. So what is being highlighted here in this adoption process is that God is a promise-keeping God. Again, the focus is on the activity of God. It's, it, the focus is on who God is and what He's doing. That's why God um, has these symbols um, even in the life of the church. We're about to go to the Lord's table um, after the sermon. The Lord's table uh, is made up of symbols, bread and wine. That's, the body obviously symbolizes the broken body of Christ. The wine or grape juice symbolizes the blood of Christ. And again, in ways that we can't fully comprehend, as we partake in that meal, the Spirit of Jesus is present with us, and the Spirit of Jesus is feeding us, feeding us and nourishing us with salvation. It's one way that God is saying, you are really my child. Experience this grace. Even if you are not aware of it in the moment, I am giving you grace to sustain you as you go out into the world for another week. And similarly, as with the Lord's Supper, baptism, what is always on display for God's people is that we have a promise-keeping God. We have a God of salvation. We need these reminders week in and week out because if you're like me, you go throughout your week and you put the emphasis or the focus back on yourself, don't you? Am I, am I doing enough? How am I measuring up? And we need to come into worship and be reminded that no, we need to adjust our focus back on who God is. We have his word to help us to do that. We get these symbols that all point to the reality that God is active in this world to save a people for him self. And Jacob in his last days, man, he wants these close family members to get this because he knows that in the ups and downs of their lives, that is the only thing that is going to really be able to sustain them day in and day, day in and day out. Again, throughout this narrative, we see J Jacob telling parts of his story, but he's interpreting them in a God-centered lens. It's never, here's what I did, or here's what I didn't do. It's, in this moment, in this place, God was present. God reaffirmed his promises to me. And so, as we're talking about living life with a view from the end, the way that we do this um, is maybe not so much actually by focusing on the reality of our death. Now, again... I obviously started the sermon with that being a wise thing, and I think it is, to occasionally um, reflect on the fact that we are all going to die. And 
I think it creates a helpful exercise for us. How are we living in light of that? But I, but I think that if that were our focus day in and day out, like we woke up every morning and said, okay, I might die today. How am I going to live my life in light of that? I, that might become unhealthy. The focus might become un, unhealthy. So how, how do we do this? How do we um, work toward uh, such a life that when we get to the end, we're able to say, you know what? By God's grace, I can celebrate the life that I lived. God was faithful to me. How do you do that? I think it's actually by focusing on the living of life. It's by focusing on um, examination and reflection in an ongoing way, not just about your death, but about how you're living your life. And for Jacob, this is kind of clarifying it now, for Jacob, the way that he did this was coming back to the story of God time and time again to remember who the author of the story is, to remember who the main character of the story is. It's God. It's God. It's God. In those moments of, well, let let me ask this. Why is it that sometimes we're reluctant to do self-examination and reflection regularly? I, I think at least one of the reasons is that because we are afraid of what we're going to stir up. We're afraid of what we're going to see. And we'd rather just kind of cruise through life without having to really go deep into that. But here's how the resources of the Christian gospel inform that and help us. And this is what we've been talking about all along. That when we do self-reflection and examination, yes, absolutely, we have to focus in on ourselves and evaluate But in those areas where we see how we are failing, where we are flawed, what do we do? It's not simply a newfound commitment to, okay, now I'm going to do better. It's actually rehearsing the story of God and finding grace and power to live differently. That despite your rebellion against God, despite all of the ways in which you have failed others, God's love for you is still alive. God's love for you is still strong. You are still one of his sons and daughters, and you need to bring that to bear on your life regularly. And that is what empowers and inspires you to live differently. It's an identity issue, you see? Instead of taking a moralistic uh, approach or direction of, okay, I'm going to do this better, when we rehearse the story of God, we're coming back to who we are. Oh, wait, you know, how I'm living here right now is actually not who I am. I'm a son or daughter of of Jesus. And because of that, Jesus um, calls me and empowers me to live differently. I want to live in light of who I actually am. So it's identity transformation that's happening, not behavior modification. Those are two very different things that that lead to two very different lifestyles and I would say lead to two very different scenarios on the deathbed. Does that make sense? Jacob then blesses his grandsons that he has adopted. Now, there are many more details and nuances in that uh, adoption process scene that takes place, but we don't have time to cover all of those. Um, But in this next scene of the narrative, he blesses his grandsons. Verses 13 through 20 is where we really see that. 
Blessing is a very important idea in the book of Genesis. It's a very important idea in the remainder of the Bible. Think of blessing as fruitfulness, as flourishing. So, for example, when God tells, when God calls Abraham to himself in Genesis chapter 12 and tells Abram that he's going to bless him so that he might be a blessing to the world, what he has in mind is flourishing. And we could even take it a step back. What he has in mind is shalom, a word that we keep coming back to in the book of Genesis. Shalom refers to peace, and it's not um, simply the absence of conflict. It is universal flourishing. It's, the, it's harmony. It's the world operating and functioning in the way that God intended. And so whenever you see blessing in the Bible, a blessing being given, that more or less is what is being communicated. May more of the fullness of shalom be yours. And may that fullness overflow in your life to the lives of others. And so Jacob is prioritizing relationships. He's wanting to communicate the importance Uh, not using these words, obviously, again, but living in light of God's story. But now he actually wants to really bless them, set them apart for who he desires for them to be, to carry on God's purposes in the world after he is gone. There's this interesting reversal um, that takes place. Did you catch that? And Joseph and Jacob kind of get into an argument about it. Um, verse, uh, if you go back to verse, starting with verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. And he blessed Joseph, and it goes on from there. And so Jacob is reversing the order of who is actually supposed to be giving the blessing because of being the firstborn. We don't know why this is going on, but Hebrews chapter 11, uh, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, points out that this was an act of faith on Jacob's part. So it's interesting because we're told that Jacob's eyes were dim. You know, he's struggling to see at this point in his life. And one commentator says, you know, while he may have been struggling with his sight, he actually had great insight or something like that. And so Jacob, you know, apparently saw something that no one else did in the way that this was supposed to go down um, for the future. Uh, God is present in this scenario, and he is mediating his blessings through Jacob. For us to live as God's people in the world, We have to live under the blessing of the gospel. And this actually isn't a new idea. It's the same thing that we've been talking about all throughout this sermon. So this is an act of blessing. God is blessing us with his word. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus over us. Because he knows that if we are going to be people who um, pursue the flourishing of the people, places, and things around us, we have to be a people who are flourishing in the gospel and the freedom of the good news. And then these other aspects of the service, the Lord's Supper, we are going to experience blessing. 
God knows that in order for us to live as his people, we need to be living under his blessing. And he is regularly giving that to us, um, not only in worship, Sunday worship, but in other ways as well. All right, as we come to the close, I want to come back to this uh, idea of, you know, maybe the best thing for us is not to focus on the reality of our death on a daily basis, but maybe to do so more occasionally. Now, I'm I'm not going to get into, like, well, here's how often you should dwell or um, think about the reality of your death. Uh, You know, you could figure that. You could use wisdom and figure that out. But I do think that it would be unhealthy for us, like I said, to every morning wake up and, all right, I might die today, so how should I live in light of that? Because that could lead to a lifestyle of fear that we're living in fear of death as opposed to really embracing the life that God has given to us. So a better exercise is probably to reflect daily, regularly, on how we are actually living our lives in the present. And this is where God's story comes together, past, present, and future. It it, it all um, comes together in the present as we are finding ourselves in the midst of God's story currently. Um, There was an article uh, several years ago, maybe from the New York Times, um, and the article was entitled, The Old Man, Life in the 90s by Roger Angel. And he says this at one point, a weariness about death exists in me and in us all in another way as well, though we scarcely notice it. We have become tireless voyeurs of death, He is on the morning news and the evening news and on the breaking middle-of-the-day news as well. Not the celebrity death, I mean, but the everyone else death. A roadside accident figure covered with a sheet. A dead family removed from a ramshackle faraway building pocked and torn by bullets. The transportation dead. The dead in floods and hurricanes and tsunamis and numbers. So you get the idea here. And then he goes on. To wrap it up by saying, death is all around us. It's so common that we are used to it. We watch movies or TV shows where people die like it's nothing. We read the news or watch the news and learn of people dying all over. Sometimes this hits me as I'm reading a news article and I think to myself, wow, someone died. Does anyone really care? But at the same time, death is not common. When someone close to us dies, our reaction is not, well, yeah, I've come to expect that people die. And so I I really like how he puts it. Death is common, but it's not common. Death is awkward, isn't it? It's awkward to talk about. I mean, I'm guessing that some of you right now just wish for this sermon to end, especially as I've reached the, I talked about death a lot at the beginning and now at the end. Death is awkward. It's meant to be awkward. It's not what God intended for us. But we want to live wisely. We're back to where we started. We want to live wisely in this world in light of this reality of death that is common but not so common. How do we do that? I know I've asked this question in a variety of ways throughout the sermon, but how do we do that? It's by focusing on life. Not simply our life, but the life of the risen Jesus. We are in the season of the church calendar called Eastertide. In other words, Easter's not over. Easter continues. Jesus is risen. 
And this season and the remainder of our lives is all about living in light of the fact that Jesus has really risen from the dead. So the way that we interact with and deal with the awkwardness of death in life is by focusing in on the resurrection life of Jesus that changes everything. Because even though we are a dying people, death will not have the last word. As we read in the assurance of forgiveness, Jesus has conquered death. And while we will die, we won't die in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, may your resurrection life fill us abundantly. May it fill us abundantly that we might have peace and freedom in the face of the reality of our death. And I pray that it would fill us to the point that we are overflowing, that we would seek the flourishing of the people, places, and things around us, living as a people of blessing in a dying world because the resurrection is true and we have good news to point to and embody. Our prayer is to help us be the people of God in this world. May we be a people who have a big view of your story. May we be a people who embrace your story and regularly rehearse that you are the one who is gracious. You are the one who is faithful even when we are not. So we cling to that. I pray that we would cling to that as a church and that that would be the story that we proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.